This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Certainly not too timid to make fun of the wacky ways of the ancient Greeks. Today we're talking about the idea of too soon in comedy in light of the death of Gilbert Gottfried and his notorious 9-11 joke. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and I just got a great deal on a whole bunch of Mother's Day cards from uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s website. Hey everybody, I'm Daniel Lobel. I am a comedian and a comic book creator in Los Angeles. I am Mary Amber. I'm from the land down under, and I am a musical comedian and Twitch streamer. I'm Adam Sank. I am a mostly retired stand-up comedian, but very active podcast host. I host a weekly show called The Adam Sank Show, which uh, focuses on LGBTQ news, topics, pop culture bullshit, and uh, for the second half, we interview um, fun people, mostly LGBTQ celebrity types. Where do you find fun people? That's got to be hard. Um, I look far and wide for them. It isn't easy, but uh, fortunately, I do find them. Yes. Yeah, so we Daniel does has done multiple podcasts. Mary is an active Twitch streamer. Yeah, Adam, how how long have you been doing your show? I know I started first. I was trying to get you to be a guest with us and to come read a philosophy text, and you would never do that. That would be too much work. But now, finally, I have a show. That does not require significant prep. So I like philosophy. I would have done it. Um, I've been doing the Adam Sank show since 2017. Okay. Far too long. Adam, how'd you come up with the name of the Adam Sank show? It was really tough. I, it was either that or the anonymous cocksuckers podcast. And, you know, I felt like only one of them would pass Apple podcast censors. And so we Mm. went with the Adam Sank show. I'm surprised that's the one that passed. Well, but yet they call it ass throughout. Mm -hmm. Adam Sank show. Adam Sank show, hashtag ass. It just happens to work out that way. (laughs) I should mention, Mark, as you did a better job of plugging me than I do, uh, I do have a podcast called Modern Day Philosophers, Comedians Discussing Philosophy, and one called the Dr. Pedia podcast where I interview doctors. Oh, you have multiple podcasts. Well, Gilbert Gottfried was on your show, so that's... And I was on his show twice, I think. All right, wow. On the Amazing Colossal Podcast. It was really fun. One of the times I went into the studio in New York and sat with him and Frank Santapadre, and that was like a really cool experience. I, I was friends with Gilbert, and I loved Gilbert, and getting to make him laugh was really a highlight of a low-lit career. Just to get us going on the topic here, Mary, let me put you on the spot. So I brought you in sort of last minute on this. I knew that these other guys and probably anybody else Daniel would put me in touch with because he has a lot of comedian friends would probably be just like, anything is funny. Uh, it's just uptight people. So I'm laying on you. I'm Maybe you'll be a dissenting voice. On me here. But, but anyway, give your sort of position. The whole thing with the Gilbert Godfrey joke is right after 9-11, the joking question was he was talking to a, a roast or something. And he said, I have to catch a flight to California. I can't get a direct flight. They said they have to stop at the Empire State Building first. And people booed him for that. And this was in his eulogies that he said, no, it's never too soon. Anything should be fair game for jokes and stuff. In fact, the stuff that is the most painful is what we need to be joking about. Like, otherwise, you know, if you're joking about the Titanic, that's just a disrespectful. Everybody's dead. They're not there to defend themselves. Nobody cares about that. It's not a live issue. Do you have any sort of opening thoughts, Mary, on this whole thing? Well, I mean, I hope my thoughts don't disappoint here because my opinion on the matter is essentially that it depends on the audience. And if you're going to be a comedian, your audience by default can't really be particularly uptight 
people that get easily offended. That's a terrible audience to target as a comedian because you're going to find it real hard to come up with material for that particular audience. It is possible, but you're making your life very, very difficult in general, I would say. It is possible. Other comedians might even turn around and say, but that's not even funny. But that's the thing. Everyone has a different sense of humor, right? And there's different audiences for different things. Depending on the audience you're going for, it might be too soon or it might be just fine. And in every single case, you probably won't know until you're on stage and someone's booing you. So you kind of just got to have some conviction and just be like, no, I'm okay with whatever happens if I say this. And if people boo me, I'll just stand up and be like, no, I'm cool with it and keep moving forward. So Adam, I know as one of New York's foremost aggressively gay comedians, I'm going to do a lot of dick jokes. I'm going to do like your audience pretty much knew what they were getting into if they were familiar with you. But did you have to play normie audiences such that this would be an issue? Well, I'll answer that question in a second. But first, I want to say I agree 100% with what Mary just said. I think our job as comedians is to make our audience happy and to make our audience think and, you know, laugh and do all those other good things. But I think you really do have to know the room. And if I'm booked for a corporate gig, which are really the only gigs I take nowadays because they pay, and I'm told you have to be super clean, we mean squeaky clean, no profanity, no sex talk, then that's what I give them. And it's boring for me. And I know I could be a hell of a lot funnier if they just let me be me, but that's what they're paying me to do. That's what this audience supposedly wants. And that's what I do. When you're doing a Friars roast, as Gilbert was, or a Comedy Central roast, I think it was, then the goal is to be as offensive and outrageous as you can be. And if someone has a problem with that, they shouldn't fucking be watching a Comedy Central roast. They're not the audience for that roast. In terms of your question, Mark, I was always gay on stage, but I also did a lot of code switching in the beginning between gay audiences and straight audiences. Straight audiences got my like sweet PG rated coming out story like, oh, my mother said this and my father said this. And it wasn't about sex. But when I started really performing for gay men, it got filthy because that's what they wanted. And they wouldn't laugh if it wasn't filthy. They didn't want to hear my stupid coming out story. They all have the same fucking story. They wanted to hear about the time that I accidentally blew a homeless guy because I didn't realize he was homeless till I tasted his dick. Like that's what a gay audience wants. So I think knowing the room and playing to the room is part of our job and our responsibility. Daniel, opening thoughts. I also agree with Mary. So I guess that's the show. Uh, <laughs> we all just agree. And boy, how fortunate were you to have accidentally had that homeless guy experience? <laughs> because otherwise, I mean, what material would you have <laughs> had? To, I mean, <laughs> like, a, I had a joke like that that I used to do about a time that I got really wasted and I was living in Times Square and I fell into an abandoned hot dog cart. And the cart fell and tipped over and fell on top of me. And all the uh, water started pouring down on me, this disgusting, slimy hot dog water. Uh And I kept trying to get up and I couldn't because I was too wasted. And and the water, it was very oily and slippery and I kept falling again. And then the smell hit me and I just started projectile vomiting. And the whole point of this joke, it was centered around the fact that I was into this girl who was in AA And I was going to these AA meetings with her to try and hook up with her. And I didn't have 
any stories when they'd go around. And I, I kept thinking I'm going to get busted as a fraud, which is why I started drinking. And every week I would try and get some material for the AA meeting so I wouldn't be a phony and I wouldn't get busted and blow it with this girl. So that happened one week and I had that material. You know, so the punchline was, you know, I'm throwing up, I'm covered in hot dog water, I'm wasted, and I'm thinking, this is going to kill it AA next week, you know? So, but it's kind of like the same. Uh, It's interesting to this conversation because it speaks to the fact that for some reason, comedy is one of the few places where tragedy is a victory, you know? Like, you can take the bad stuff and that's your good stuff, you know? So I remember like early into comedy feeling, the way I did at that AA meeting where I felt like, oh, my life was too, I don't know, vanilla or whatever you'd say for me to be here in the room with these comedians. And they all had these gritty stories and stuff. And I remember like one guy was like, oh, I I guess the term wasn't considered politically incorrect at the time or nobody knew. But he's like, ah, I slept with the tranny behind a dumpster. And I was just thinking, oh, man, I just went to, to college. I don't know. I don't <laughs> like I, I was like, oh, this is. So I better go out there and live a grittier life. I had this girlfriend who grew up in a trailer park and all her stories were insane. And she came from poverty and her brother was a stripper, a male prostitute, and her sister was a stripper. And I remember being jealous of this somehow. And I was just like, I'm like, she has cerebral palsy and she's got a brother who is a drug addict and a prostitute and a stripper sister and she's from a trailer. Why am I jealous of this? Only in comedy would this be like, something that would be like a credit to where you are. Like people would be like, oh, that's amazing. That's great that you had that background. In the rest of the world, everyone would be like, that's terrible. It sort of really speaks to this conversation where it's like we are mining the terrible to get the goods, really. So like when something terrible happens, every comedian, like a little part in the back of their brain is like, oh, this could be good for me. This could be useful somehow for me. And then there's this altruistic secondary thought that's like, and it could be cathartic for the audience. <laughs> you know, you're doing such a public service. <laughs> yes. You know, I know I, we all need to laugh through this tragedy together, but I could really have an edgy piece of material here, you know? See, now I want to see the TV show or whatever that has like the person on one of the nine 11 flights furiously scribbling down jokes. This is awesome. Like reacting <laughs> in real time to a horrifying situation in this callous way so that the entire audience can despise this character. If there was a comic on one of those flights, you know he was thinking, oh, I got to record all of this to turn it into material. And then, you know, if I survive it, which I guess he wouldn't or she wouldn't have. Yeah, that's true. When we're in a situation where something really fucked up is happening, our little internal tape recorder turns on. We immediately start recording everything because we're like, we could, something. there's something here. There's a joke here. I'm going to be able to use this. I'd also say you kind of like jump in on it too. So if you're in a weird situation and you're like, this person is really freaking strange, you're like, I might just stick around and see what they do. This could go somewhere interesting. You know, most people would walk away and we're like, hmm. (laughs) That's how we wind up in a lot of bad relationships as comics. You're like, I don't want to leave. The material's so good, you know? (laughs) Like, it's an unhealthy, clearly an unhealthy situation, but that took me a long time to get past. It's like an old comedy saying that if things go well, that's not funny. If things go wrong, that's funny. When things go very wrong, that could be very funny. And everybody's eager to get that very funny out there first. So there is a selfish component to this. 
we could all sit around and be like, we are the ones taking the air out of the room or whatever it is. I don't know what the hell, the tension out of the room. And we are, because that's where laughter comes from. But we're also the ones scrambling to turn the tragedy into gold as quickly as possible. Also, it's honestly some people's coping mechanism. Some people, that's just their instant response. I know when I was in high school, there was a suicide in my grade and there was a giant assembly call to talk about it. And it's absolutely horrendous. It was a girl I shared a locker with, actually. So it was a, it was pretty close. And I was pretty shocked and miserable. And yet I couldn't stop making jokes. That was the only way to cope with it. And for some people, that's how it is. I mean, I noticed that people around were not receptive, so I did stop. But that's just kind of how my brain was processing it. You're a little bit of a sociopath, aren't you, Mary? (laughs) Not really. I wasn't trying to, you know, do anything wrong. That's just... um, I can relate to it. I relate to what she's saying. Of course, I I, I can totally relate. It's what they call church giggles. When you know you're supposed to be serious, and that makes it harder and harder to be serious... And especially when you're a teenager, how are you supposed to wrap your brain around that kind of tragedy? You can't. So you just let go of the emotion in any way that you can. It's hard to sit in the pain, too. And I think as a comedian, or I don't know, as a person, we have an instinct, a certain kind of person anyway, we have an instinct to try and get rid of the pain, like not sit in the pain. So it's like, I could fix this. It's like the little kid in you that's like watching your parents fight or something. You're like, I can make this okay. Everybody's fine. You know, you stop yelling at you and, you know, I'll do something silly. You know, I'm here. Look, it's a show, you know, (laughs) but it's like, let me just distract from the pain so we don't have to sit in the pain. Right. I find it hard to distinguish between that as a coping mechanism, sort of an escapist thing and an instant sense of irony. So I recall some stressful moments of my life. You know, I got age 16, I'm pulled over for a speeding ticket and I was thinking of other things. For some reason, this is funny to me. Age 13, the challenger blows up. They tell us about it. I'm in school. I start laughing uproariously. It's not like the suicide thing. It's not like I knew these people. It's because they had built it up as such this, oh, and a teacher is going to go up and it's going to be just this. And it was just such a horrible irony. I couldn't see it as a tragedy. I wasn't connected. It this was is the first, first time I've ever laughed about the, the Challenger tragedy. I can't <laughs> believe you just made me laugh, but you did because you're right. There was such a, we're exactly the same age and uh-huh. there was such a buildup. They brought television sets into our classroom so we could all watch the launch and then it fucking blew up. And we were like, is this supposed to happen? Like, what the fuck is going on? We could not wrap our brains around it. I'll point this out also. You said it jokingly that Mary's a little bit of a sociopath, but probably we all are. And we kind of train ourselves to be that way. Because to be a great comedian, you have to have at least a willful sense of a lack of empathy for things. Because otherwise you take things very seriously. And if you take things seriously, that's the opposite of the job description, right? You can still take things seriously as a comedian, and try and use your platform to be serious about anything. But in order to remove yourself from it and look at it as an outsider, which you have to do because you can't be funny from inside, you have to like remove yourself, be an observer. You have to disconnect your empathy, even if it's temporarily, which I think I've gotten better at doing because I do think I'm a very empathetic person. And what happened with me anyway was I became completely unempathetic because I don't know how to do things in moderation. 
So I was just like, well, just switch the switch completely. And it took me years to rebuild empathy. And then I became way too empathetic. And then I was like, all right, there's got to be a way to taper this down, at least in the moment, you know, so you can see things from an outside perspective. Because if you're deeply affected by things emotionally, either you're going to deflect, like Mary said, and that's, you know, the comedian way, or you're going to experience it. And then it's not funny because you're experiencing this pain like everybody else. So there's a willful lack of empathy involved. You can always exaggerate it as well, make it almost cartoonish. Like if you see something, like you said, from an outside perspective, it's almost like you're seeing it like a fly on the wall or something, but you're seeing it play out more like a sitcom because it just helps you process it again. Like if it's something that's over the top, exaggerated and more cartoon-like, then it's less, I suppose, painful to process that way. And I think it's also why so many comedians become addicts because addicts are just people who are just constantly trying to avoid feeling and you don't want to sit in the feeling. I remember when I was in a rehab at one point for uh, eating disorder, which I still haven't conquered, but I was there and my friend, a comedian, Ralphie May, had just died and I thought that was a good catalyst. We toured together. I thought that was a good reason for me to try to not die and I checked myself into rehab for a summer. And I remember one of the therapists saying to me, like, after me talking about Ralphie for some time, she took what I said and said, look, you know, your friend Ralphie, like, worked so hard not to feel with food, with drugs and everything. So he wouldn't have to sit in the feelings and the painful feelings of his life. And now he's dead. So why don't you look at it as a choice? Either you're going to have to sit in the pain and live or you wind up dead. And I still haven't figured out how to fully commit to sitting in that pain, honestly, because it's so difficult that you almost think, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe the other alternative is an option. You don't want it to be, right? I'm not saying I'm suicidal, but I'm saying there's got to be somewhere in between suicidal and like subconsciously suicidal because you're not doing the things that you should be doing to not die. I've had this conversation with myself. I say to myself, I don't want to die. I have this family that I love and a lot of things that I'm grateful for in my life. And I tell myself I'm completely convinced that I don't want to die, but my actions seem to say otherwise a lot of the time. So what's the truth? Maybe that's also why there is probably some altruistic impetus to try and take other people's pain away with laughter. I do think that's true. Although I think most comedians are just narcissists that are trying to promote themselves and get to some other goal. But in the process, it's nice to convince yourself that you're doing something great for humanity and society. And there is some truth to it because I used to say a comedy club is where sad people go watch sadder people to get less sad. And I think that's pretty true because the sadder people know how to <laughs> how to get you out of the pain. That's why I like watching cult documentaries. Cult documentaries always help. When you're feeling like really down, you're like, oh, at least I'm better off than this person. Like, you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just watched the Menudo one. Is that kind of what you're like? Menudo? Yeah, it was. The I need to find this one. I haven't seen it. It was the story. <laughs> it just came out as the story of the super popular boy, Latinx boy band and how screwed up it was, how, how exploitative and there was sexual abuse and, you know, gives you one of those fame is probably not worth it <laughs> for almost everybody that you hear about. The torture that went into their craft for whatever reason, for wh whatever the uh, source of it was, 
I don't know. It's good that somebody did it. I don't know if Menudo was an acceptable deal as far as I was concerned, but I'm not the target audience for that. Like, it's awful. (laughs) Does anyone else feel like Latinx is just a very sexy term? Like, it feels like X-rated Latinos. Whenever I hear it, there's that feeling like, oh, yeah. Latinx, like it's like late night. There's actually great controversy about Latinx because a lot of Latin people don't like that term. And they're like, when did we get branded Latinx? I'm happy just being Latin or Latino or Latina. (laughs) It feels like the Latin content that would come on Cinemax at night when I was a kid, like Latinx. It was translated. The Spanish speaking people on the show were saying Bonico or something. And they would, the captions would (laughs) would turn it to Latinx. Yeah, some yeah. woke some woke <laughs> captioner decided that Hispanico now means Latinx. Literally never heard of Latinx prior to this conversation. Right. This is the first time I have heard of this. <laughs> it's a thing in the United States where we have a, a very large Latin population and, and the woke term now is instead of Latinos, because that's a masculine suffix, is to say Latinx because that's more inclusive. Although lately I've heard that now we're supposed to say Latin A. And use the the letter E, the sound A, on all adjectives to make them neutral. So now you're actually rebranding the entire language so that nobody is bonito or bonita. They're all bonite. And I definitely don't think there's a consensus among Spanish speakers about this at this time. They are, they're not with that. Oh, time to rewrite the entire language. Jesus. Exactly. That's See, this much. Is, <laughs> this is why German is superior here because they have a neuter. They already have a neuter tense. Well, German is the best language, though. German is, is is pure genius. Every time they speak, it's an EDM hit song. Like, they don't even have to say anything meaningful. Like, the number eight is acht. It's just like spitting. It's beautiful. Just add a beat to it. Acht. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, gorgeous. Speaking of Holocaust humor, we haven't mentioned Joan Rivers yet. And to me, Joan Rivers is my comic idol. And if there's any sort of female version of Gilbert Gottfried, I think it would be she. And I was once on a gay cruise. Surprise, surprise. I was on an Atlantis cruise for gay men and Joan Rivers was the headliner. This was probably about 15 years ago. And she told an AIDS joke that night that got her a standing ovation. And part of it was because she was who she was. And as we were saying earlier, the audience knew what they were getting, but also because the joke was so smart and it was so smartly delivered. And the joke was, I don't know if you want me to do the Joan Rivers impression or not. That's up to you. Please do it. Do it. Do it. So she starts out by saying, I've been volunteering for God's love we deliver for 20 years. And now AIDS is chronic. I show up at the guy's house. I go, here's your food. He goes, oh, just leave it over there on the desk. I'm going to the gym. The gym, you're going to die today, buddy. AIDS are me. And the joke was that like they weren't dying of AIDS anymore. They were healthy enough that they could go to the gym and just have her leave the meal delivery on the table. And so it got a huge standing ovation because we, A, we were applauding her for being her usual inappropriate dark self. And we were also applauding the fact that AIDS was no longer a death sentence, that it was no longer deadly. We were celebrating that fact. And she was celebrating that fact in a comedic way by saying like, hey, I'm sick of delivering food to you assholes. You're not even dying anymore. And to me, it, it encapsulates everything I love about stand-up comedy. We're about at the midpoint. Let me touch base with the topic that we came in on. It seems that all these issues that are so fun to talk about, about sensitivity in comedy, or you know, we all just started, of course, it depends on your audience. Of course, if you're in a church where people like farting in church, 
fart in church. If you're in a normal church, maybe don't fart in church. But the timing doesn't seem to tremendously come into it. There was an article that I will point folks at that somebody had done a study of, I think it was a Twitter account by a hurricane. So it was like, I'm a badass hurricane. And they would they tweet stuff from the point of view of the hurricane. And so these scholars, because this is what people get paid to do, I guess, if you get your PhD, they surveyed people on how funny they thought the tweets were based on the timing. So right before it hit landfall, people thought it was hilarious. As soon as it hit landfall, their power was out and the tweets kept going. They were probably objectively just as funny, but people didn't find them as funny. But then they said 36 days was the magic point where it got back up to as funny as it was going to be, but then it sloped off. So, you know, once people didn't care about it, once it was too far off, then it was no big deal anymore. So there was, there was something about it being timely, being current, we're all kind of uncomfortable with this thing, but not right on top of the thing. So it's definitely different with different audiences. Some of them, they're just never going to find Holocaust humor or, you know, rape humor or school shooting humor or whatever these, they're just never, ever going to find that funny. But there are others who, well, it might depend. And, and there's, there are others, as we said, probably all comedians that there's going to be some funny joke about anything that there really is no limit. Though there might be circumstances in which, you know, you are not in that mode. You are being personally affected. You know, we all have our own personal coping mechanisms. And when we're talking to an audience, we got to be aware of somebody might have just gone, had a terrible experience such that this is the worst possible timing for this joke. And, you know, that might be a reason to just don't tell rape jokes ever. Certainly, I'm not going to do that. It seems like the timing thing is a pretty small consideration. Like if a joke is funny enough to tell, then as Daniel was saying, you want to be the first one to tell it. <laughs> you don't want to wait 36 days and think the audience is going to think it's slightly funnier. You just want to get it out there. But if it's over the line, it's probably over the line. And the timing is not much to do with it. Any disagreement there? Any elaboration? Again, I think it's about intention and it's about what the joke is. To take a, a real example that just happened the other day, Ivana Trump was found dead at the bottom of a staircase. And immediately there were jokes about this on Twitter. And the one that I saw most frequently was a meme someone created that showed Donald and Ivana together back in the 80s. And it said, wouldn't it be great if they got back together now? Now, that's not a joke at Ivana Trump's expense. We're not laughing at her death. We're not insulting her. We're saying we want him to die. And so I'm sure there were many people who found it highly offensive, but I found it hilarious and it made me happy. I'd also say like, especially something like that today, I think doing comedy today is a very strange balancing act because people are more politicized than ever right now. People are more on top of trends, news, globalization. I'm on the other side of the planet and I'm still hearing about, say, the American president and things like that, or the American ex-president in this case. So it's one of those things where nowadays it's a very noisy environment and to stay interesting, clickbaity, relevant, etc., you do kind of have to cover those subjects. And it is also significantly more universal now than it used to be. So you don't have to be quite as worried as you would potentially be in the past that half your audience doesn't know what you're talking about. Because in most cases, these trends are a lot more, I suppose, understood widely because they spread like diseases. And then everyone forgets about them much faster as well. So there's that as well with the timeliness. I, I don't know if you could wait 36 days to make a joke like that one. I kind of feel like that one would die in 36 days. People would be like, huh? What are you referring to? I think in 36 hours, it's too late to make that joke. But there's also a, a difference between making a joke on Twitter 
and actually crafting a joke that you're going to tell on stage. Those are very different media. Well, Twitter is definitely a very different place. If you're worried about people coming for you, Twitter is probably not the place to be making the jokes. Well, let's remember, that's how Gilbert Gottfried lost his most lucrative gig, which was the as the Aflac duck. I don't know, Mary, if this registered over in Australia, but there's an insurance company called Aflac here. And for like 20 years, Gilbert was the voice of the Aflac duck. And it was an animated duck. And all he had to do was say, Aflac! over and over again during the commercial and made millions of dollars doing it. And then there was a nuclear power plant meltdown in Japan. I think I have that right. Or maybe it was an earthquake that hit a nuclear power plant. I thought it was a tsunami. but Anyway, it was a, it was a massive tragedy. And Gilbert tweeted a joke about it, like immediately, and lost his Aflac contract. Never made another Aflac commercial. I don't know what the lesson to be learned there is. Well, I think the lesson was they were trying to find a cheaper voice and they needed an out. And they just figured anybody could say Affleck. Very possibly. And Great gig. Honestly, that sounds amazing. Probably they recorded him once and just reused it. Anyway. Yeah, no, yeah. I heard him talk about this on Howard on the Howard okay. Stern Show. He said that they would literally bring him in over and over again and they would say, now we want you to say it like you're angry. Now we want you to say it like you're sad. Now we, and it was the same word over and over again. And he, he couldn't have told you one from the other, but they kept giving him money to do this. So he kept doing it. That sounds like a good task for AI is to be able to take the existing library of Gilbert Gottfried Affleck samples and extrapolate additional emotions and situations so that you could give it a little juice and you could put it in any situation. I wish I could get a gig like that. <laughs> we all or, do. Or any gig. <laughs> Any gig doing anything for any amount of money. Come to think of it. (laughs) It's too soon, Daniel. You'll only be revered that way after your death. (laughs) Let's suffer our sponsor break. I was, in preparation for a future episode of this podcast, trying to watch the latest season of Better Call Saul. I signed up for the AMC Plus channel and found that it was not available in full there. So before plopping down a bunch of dollars to purchase that season... I thought to fire up my Nord VPN. I pay for Netflix. I use a VPN to tell Netflix that I'm in fact in the UK and voila, the entire season is there for my perusal and the video streams just as quickly as you'd expect. No problems. And once you stumble upon this little perfectly legal hack, you will find so many things on UK Netflix or French Netflix or Indian Netflix or wherever you want to log in, things that you would maybe not normally have access to. NordVPN has more than 5,000 server options around the world. But even if you don't care about seeing foreign streaming video, a VPN is a very, very good idea for keeping your info private. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted. You never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. So go to nordvpn.com slash PMP. You can get a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. And they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. That is nordvpn.com slash PMP. This too soon thing seemed like it might be something that would be over very quickly. But what this idea that comedy is tragedy plus time. Daniel was saying we mind the tragedies, but that somehow time makes it better. I haven't really heard any words. It seems like a pretty obvious truth, something that like if you have a personal tragedy, you know, you get divorced or something. You're pretty depressed at the time. That's not so great. But then 
probably you can make jokes about it at some point. You comedians probably can make it in the first five minutes, even while it's going on. But the normal person, time seems to help. I don't know. Is this just a empty slogan? Well, perhaps the way to look at it is the most divine humor doesn't require time because God is above time and they say God has a sense of humor. So if you really want to look for like the best humor, it's timeless. Do you think I'm onto something? I want to go to one of those Bible comedians and yell, too soon, too soon, when he's talking about the Maccabees or whatever that. <laughs> I don't know. Because the Maccabees are definitely uh, fertile ground for Bible comedians. I went to church. I went to, to religious camp at age 11, and everybody was, again, Adam and I are, are both 50. And so when we were that age... Polish jokes, at least in my, in the Chicago area, Polish jokes were the big thing. And totally acceptable. I think it was the Maccabees. It was like, we don't want to offend the Polish people, but you can say the American, the German, and the Maccabees. That was at Bible camp, how they wanted us to tell the jokes. Was this a Jewish camp? No, no, I was, it was a born again thing. I became born again, actually two summers in a row. Maccabee was just a synonym for Jew. Basically they were, it was a, oh, you know, I don't think it was actually the Maccabees. That was just a, it was some, it probably was not (laughs) anything. I don't know my, I didn't know that. So yeah, yeah, whatever the ancient uh, reference was, they they found something I think that was neutral, but it would be hilarious if they had told us to change it. So in fact, we were insulting Jews all the time. That would be. And not unexpected. Rich irony. They say when you make plans, God laughs. That's a very strange sense of humor. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, that just makes God seem like an asshole. Imagine if you just went up on stage and just said plans and it killed. And then I'm going <laughs> uh, to the store and people loved it. I'm like, oh, wow, these people have a godly sense of humor. Did you just write that on the spot or is that something you've done in your, in your set? I, I just came up with that. It's cute. It's very Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. Well, he's dead. It's a morbid <laughs> way to look at the joke. Uh, <laughs> but still funny. It goes back to... The very first thing that Mary said, it's all about the audience. So if you talk to a bunch of people who are the family who lost people in 9-11, and that's the whole room, it probably won't go over so well. But then there are people who maybe who live in Manhattan and are all shook up. Everything seems tragic and the world seems like it's falling apart. And then they hear this and it's like a little bit of relief. So I don't think everything is for everyone. I think that nowadays that's more true than ever because everybody's got an audience for something, as Mary said in the beginning. We're very segmented. Uh, Adam uh, mentioned that he has a whole crowd of people who enjoy homeless blowjob humor. So that's a very niche thing. So I think everybody has their, right? I mean, that's not, you know, that probably wouldn't have worked at your Bible camp. You bring up 9-11. I'm actually, my hometown, Summit, New Jersey, we lost an inordinate amount of people on 9-11 because it's a commuter town where a lot of the men who lived in Summit would commute to the World Trade Center for various finance jobs. I think 30 people were lost in a town that only has 25,000 people. So it was and is a massive tragedy. And I, for years, I would organize a comedy show as a fundraiser for the local Y, and I would bring comedians from New York City. And I would say to them, like, you don't have to be super clean, but like, don't be raunchy. This isn't really a raunchy crowd. It's more of a, like a smart crowd, like keep it civilized. What I didn't tell them is don't joke about 9-11. And I brought this guy one year, and I will not say his name, but he's 
normally a terrific comedian. And he went on like a 10 minute long rant about the towers burning. That was not only like wrong crowd, wrong time, but like just not funny at all. There was nothing funny about it. It was like something he was working out for the first time. And meanwhile, audience members were storming out in tears. It was so horrifying to watch. And it was one of those times where I was frozen. I felt like what I need to do is, is walk up there and literally pull him off. But I didn't want to make it worse than it already was. And I kept thinking he was going to move on to something else. And, you know, 20 years of doing stand-up, that was the worst moment for me. And I wasn't even on stage. It was just something I was witnessing, mm-hmm. but felt responsible for. What you needed to do is have a big stuffed plane and just knock him off stage <laughs> with the plane. <laughs> Now that's funny. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's funny because my recollection of 9-11 is I was on the other side of the planet and a toddler and I had no idea what was going on. I remember when I woke up in the morning, it had already happened because it happened while I was asleep. And my parents had to say something about it because it was the only thing on the news. It was the only thing everyone was talking about. But here I am, this like tiny female child that has no idea what's going on. I mean, I don't know if I was even vaguely cognizant of the fact that there was a country called America at that point. And my parents were like, a plane flew into a building. It is a big deal. Do not worry about it. Go forth. Enjoy your day. And I was like, they should fly it better. And then I just, you know, (laughs) moved on with my day because I had no idea. And it is like, yeah, you were saying the audience. So yeah, if you were speaking to people on the other side of the planet, you'd probably have a very, very different reaction again. And this happens all the time on my Twitch channel because I stream on Twitch and that's a global platform. I get people continuously coming in with American politics, for example, and I have no idea what's going on. And they're like, comment on this, comment on this. And I'm like, why? You tell me about our president. And they're like, I don't know much about the Australian president. And I'm like, yeah, that's because we don't have one. We don't have a president. See, so if you want me to comment on yours, come learn a bit more about mine first. So, yeah, it is very much like for some people that's going to sting like crazy. And for others, they're going to be like, huh? <laughs> completely no idea. The most uncomfortable episode of Bill Cosby's revival of kids say the darndest things when they would tell kids, you know, this is like on September 12th, about September 11th and the wacky things the kids would say. And you're like, all oh, those little dickens. <laughs> you know, come to think of it, I got <laughs> fired for 9-11 jokes from a weekend. It must have been. Three years after 9-11, too, I was working at Governor's Comedy Club with Alonzo Bowden. And it was the first time I got to open for like a headliner comedian for a weekend. And the first show Friday night, the same jokes did really well. The the joke was basically that 9-11 has been a few years. And I think we're almost at the point where 9-11 is going to be a mattress sale. And the commercial would be like, you know, we got your twins and they're half off the explosive prices. That kind of thing. So I was just making basically mattress puns about the towers. And it got, you know, it did well the first show. And the second show, I guess somebody stormed out. And at the end of the show, they fired me. They said, we've never had to fire an opener in the middle of a weekend, but you have to leave. You've made history. I was so excited to have had my first like big weekend. And there was a big manager there who was worked with Alonzo and he said he was going to watch my set and he watched the second one and somebody stormed out. And of course, never went anywhere with that. But I was sent home and it was like humiliating and awful. And it was all because one woman stormed out. Now, maybe she lost someone in 9-11. 
in which case I look like a real jerk, but maybe she didn't, in which case she looks like a real jerk, you know? What's interesting to me about that story, it's a real parable for comedians because the first time you told it, the crowd loved it. There were no problems. There were no complaints. Therefore, the joke was successful, right? It was a good joke. The second time you did it, someone stormed out and complained and you got fired. Therefore, it was a terrible, highly offensive, inappropriate joke. Same joke told the same way verbatim. So really what ultimately determines whether it's too soon or not is the audience, which sort of brings us back to Mary's original point is that you have to know your room. And unfortunately, we don't always know our room. That's the wild card in standup is you don't know who's out there. And you might tell a joke that you've told a hundred times that no one's ever had an issue with. And the hundred and first time you tell it, it leads to a massive incident and maybe your career is forever changed. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and now I think we live in a time where everybody's so hypersensitive that you could find somebody who's offended by almost anything. Like we were talking about with the Latinx. Like you have a room where some people have never heard of Latinx. Some people might resent the term Latinx. And some people might resent if you don't use the term Latinx. You can't please everybody in that room at all. And you can't please everybody in any room because I think also now it's like a victim culture where you get extra points the more victimized you act. And so people are like, you know, I hate the word triggered, but everybody's triggered by something. And I'll tell you a very quick, very funny anecdote, Mark. Do this anecdote, but then no more triggering. We only have about 10 more minutes and I don't want us to just get caught up. No more triggering. That that goddamn question. I think Mark is, Mark is triggered by this, but I, uh, (laughs) I went to Las Vegas. This is like two years ago already with my wife, Kylie, and we're online to check in to our room. And in front of us, the guy is, I guess, giving a hard time to the person. I don't really know, but what happens is they get into a shouting match. The person checking in and the person checking this guy in. So I turned to Kylie and I said, do me a favor. I just want to see what happens. When we get up there, just say because of the yelling, you're very triggered. And she said, I'm not doing that. I'm like, come on. I just, what would happen if we just say that you're triggered? There's a lot of yelling. You could have had an abusive childhood. Just say you're triggered. You don't have to say why. Just say I'm triggered. She's like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, what if I say you're triggered and you just look sad and look down? Can you do that? And she's like, okay, I'll agree to that. So we go up there. And I said, what was all that yelling? And he said, oh, that guy was a jerk or whatever. And I said, well, you know, my wife, unfortunately, as a result, is is very triggered. And she's like looking down and trying not to laugh, but like looking <laughs> sad. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And I said, well, you really triggered her. She's very, very triggered. And he's like, well, I, I feel terrible. I'm, I'm going to upgrade you guys to a bigger room. I'm like, but you don't understand. She's very, very triggered. Give you a $150 food and beverage credit for the time that you're here. I said, but she's very triggered. And he said, I'm going to give you a strip view of the Vegas strip from your, from your hotel room. And I said, wow, okay. Well, I guess thank you. I mean, so we left and we go up to the room and I felt terrible. And I said, you know, this poor guy he has this terrible job. Somebody comes and harasses him. He finally stands up for himself in a culture where you're never allowed to stand up for yourself. And this guy's in the service industry. And somebody did so much to him that he stands up for himself because of this jerk. Me comes up there. Now he has to pay the price and like hand out all this stuff because he's terrified that he'll lose his job because he triggered someone. Because this is the environment that we've built for ourselves as a society where everybody's afraid of everything offending everyone. And I said, I'm going down and telling him that I lied. And Kylie said, don't do that. It was bad enough that you did it the first time. 
don't go down now and say you lied. I'm like, I got to. I, I feel terrible. Look what I did to this guy. So I went down there and I said, listen, I, I have to tell you the truth. My wife wasn't triggered. I just wanted to see what would happen if I said that. And I feel really bad because I think you probably were in the right and you stood up for yourself and it's not your fault. And uh, and then he said, wow, that's the most honest thing anyone has ever done at this job. I'm giving you another $50 food and beverage credit. I couldn't Holy believe it. Holy shit. What a good guy. So, yeah, instead of like, taking oh, anything away, he was so happy that somebody did that. But I think the anecdote is was worth the wait because it really illustrates, I think, my little social experiment that I did. To what extent we have to be hypersensitive nowadays, or we're told to be hypersensitive nowadays in this culture. And if a comedian internalizes that hypersensitivity, it is possible for them to absolutely be able to cover no topic and have no angle on anything because everything will trigger somebody. And if you're worried about that, you are not in the realm of creative comedy anymore. You can't be a comedian. I said that at the start when I was doing my rant about audiences as well. I'm like, there's different audiences for different things. But if you're going to be a comedian, you're going to make your life next to impossible if you're going to be trying to cater for those people. I think it's as an artist, act, comedian, whatever, entertainer, you have to kind of set the bounds of like, this is what I'm willing to do and this is how far I'm willing to go. Mm -hmm. And I'm not willing to go to that level where I'm catering to that extent because I find my own material boring at that point and I can't tolerate it. You know, since you three actually play in front of audiences and I talk to a microphone and being humorous is only optional in the kind of podcast that I do, I can be more sort of narcissistic and philosophical about it. And I was thinking of this question as when is too soon for me? What do I actually find funny? Are there things that, you know, and the psychological stuff that we were talking about, about reacting to tragedy in the moment and how you process things. And the most social I get is like, what can I say around my family? Like, and this is a very live issue of like what I can say around my wife and that I have a comedian's sense of nothing is sacred, which I have to control around, you know, maybe my son, I can say <laughs> anything, but probably there'd be something that I could say to him that he'd be like, dad, don't, don't. <laughs> just just stop. Uh, I think about how these things connect. Do you have any sort of last thoughts as we are wrapping up here on, yes, okay, different things for different audiences. Audiences are problematic, as we're pointing out. They're increasingly problematic. Maybe everybody should just get their own niche. People who are listening to the Adam Sank show, God damn it, they should know what they're going to get if they're listening to more than five minutes of it. And if they act, oh, I'm so, like they would have stopped listening earlier. And I guess that is my own way of, couching these things in a 13 year project of, you know, two hour conversations is like probably the number of people that are just dropping in for the first time is pretty low, but that hasn't worked for, you know, I've heard that as a defense for like Howard Stern or somebody like that, or, you know, you got to hear it in the context of, you know, the fact that somebody's on the air for this many hours every day and you really get in the mode of like what they're about and you're not going to be offended it's only when things get pulled out of context. And in fact, I should bring this up. The worst example of this is the Louis C.K. secondhand, thirdhand school shooting joke. In other words, after he was exiled and could not be on TV anymore, and he deigned to show up in a comedy club and told something about, not Parkland, what maybe it was Parkland, but you know, some school shooting thing, which then journalists would write about without quoting it. This was something that he was working on and it just sort of served to reinforce like, oh, this person has no class. 
Whereas if it were, you know, this is at least like, I don't know, Chappelle's take on it or somebody that I heard smarter than I am talking, you know, more connected to the comedy world. If this had actually been something that had been developed over time with audiences and served up in a special, people would not have reacted that way. Well, let me first say, Chappelle stopped being funny to me a long time ago. Chappelle to me is just an angry dick with an axe to grind who punches down and used to be one of the greatest comedians of all time and is now just a dickhead. But I think in terms of my closing thoughts, I would say this, like, yes, we are in a hypersensitive time. And yes, we are in something of a victim culture. At the same time, I think it makes people better comedians when they have to work a little harder and think about who might actually be out there. There was a time not too long ago, and I'm including when I started, when you could get a big laugh just by doing a stereotypical Indian accent. If you went on stage and did that voice that we all know, like Apu on The Simpsons, who's played by a white guy, Frank Kazaria, most people would laugh. But anyone who was Indian or Pakistani or really not white would find that offensive and be uncomfortable and say, like, you're stereotyping my culture and getting a cheap laugh out of it. So guess what? I can't do that voice anymore. That's not really a loss. It just means I have to work a little bit harder in crafting material that doesn't put someone down who hasn't done anything to warrant being put down. I don't know. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world that we we try to be funny while at the same time trying to be I mean, for lack of a better term, to be inclusive and to be funny for everyone, not just a select group of people that are like us. And we finally disagree. Mary, any sort of closing thoughts? I think that that was a really good demonstration. I have my own restrictions I put down on when I'm writing my own comedic routines or songs. So you've got restrictions like whether keeping it inclusive, whether you're going to go all out, be as offensive as humanly possible. Say, I personally, I try and avoid religion and targeting individuals in my jokes. I'd rather go bigger groups or like, you know, cliques or something and and make jokes about that as opposed to individual people, because in my mind that could be classed as bullying. And I, I think that's less funny and just straight up mean, even though sometimes it can elicit a laugh by default if someone dislikes the person. So I've got my own restrictions I put on. And in the end, I think that that does end up leading to us having our audiences, our own audiences, whether we want it or not. Even though if you say it should be for everyone, but it won't. Because some people are just not going to like it. Some people, by being inclusive, you're going to like alienate some people who hate that, who want you to be exclusive. And I mean, you don't want those people listening anyway, because you probably want to throw like some squishy water balloon at them and kick them in the balls. I don't know. But, (laughs) you know, either way, your choices that you make are going to result in you having certain people that like what you do, certain people that don't. I think by default, if you're going to choose comedy as your main form of entertainment, you are choosing to alienate people off the bat because there are large chunks of society that just don't work with comedy. They can't handle it or they can only handle things like slapstick or that sort of thing. And if if you're going to make this as like a stand-up gig or something like that, you can't do that. So you're, you're going to have to alienate people. I was going to say I only want aim to exclude the Maccabees, but now I realize I can't say that. I don't mind. I'm Jewish. Make all the Maccabee jokes. I'm not in the camp of punching up or down. Just funny. Just the punchlines just have to be funny. If they're objectively funny, I think enough people will find them funny. I think you can always find somebody who 
one person sees as a bully and another person sees as a hero. To defend Daniel, that even though I knew you would come down as a free speech absolutist and defending Chappelle and whatever, you know, if we were going to get into that, Daniel's comedy is so like nice and, you know, self-deprecating and telling you stories. You know, we've heard examples of it here. So he's not the guy that the trans community is going to get angry about. No. And I've gotten people like when I've gone on Facebook and had these kind of rants and said these things I've had, like people be like, well, why are you getting involved? Your comedy is not like that. And I said, it doesn't matter. That's the point. You know, I don't have to defend myself. I have to defend what I believe. If I had jokes like that, which I don't, I don't because we all self-censor to what our own sensibilities are. You know, so I don't have any jokes that would go after uh, trans people, for instance. You brought up trans people. Maybe because my uncle is uh, is a trans person and I have a personal sensitivity to that because uh, I love my uncle who has me call him uncle. But I'm not aiming to hurt anybody with what I do, but I'm also not worried about hurting anybody with what I do because I know I'm coming from a good place. Two quick points, Daniel. One, I defy you to find anything funny in Chappelle's anti-trans rants in his latest special. There's no jokes there. It's just someone who really is very angry that trans women exist. But it's not my challenge to take because people did find it funny, right? There was laughter in his specials. So I don't have to be the one who finds it funny. When you're somebody as famous as Dave Chappelle, your audience is going to laugh at anything you say out of a simple respect. Can I also just add something in here? People <laughs> laugh when they're awkward as well. That's a That's really right. good way of getting laughter. Like people being like, I don't know what to do. Like I've been at like some open mics, which is so painfully not funny and people are still laughing as well. So it does depend. Like, But my second point, Daniel, is Dave Chappelle doesn't need you defending him. He's doing just fine. He's still working any time he wants to, making millions of dollars. It's not about Dave or his jokes. It's about... The concept of, of like the, 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 the freedom to him or anybody to go anywhere, which I believe you he should. He can say anything he wants to. doesn't mean he should. That's, I agree. I mean, I think that's true about everybody. I don't think everybody should say everything, but I tend to believe, and here we go on a little bit of a tangent, and I know we don't have the time for it, but I tend to believe the good in people, and I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't think everybody does. I always hope that people give me the benefit of the doubt. But if they don't, I've gotten to the point where I just go, well, that's on them. And if I thought it was funny, I was coming from a good place with it. I know that. Now, if everybody says, hey, you know, wake up to the, what you're saying is wrong and everything. And I, there have been times I've reassessed things and I've said, oh, well, you know, maybe they have a point or maybe they don't. But I want to live in a world where everybody's free to explore ideas and I want to live in a world where people are open to uh, hearing people out or open to shutting people out because that's what I love about human expression and comedy. And I feel like, you know, Chappelle could say whatever he wants, as you said, and it doesn't bother me. I want comedians to be able to offend. Uh, he said things that were anti-Jewish in one of his specials recently. And people said to me, aren't you upset by that? And I, I said, no, I don't care for the joke, but. I defend his right to tell it. That's just where I fall on this. All the talk of Chappelle is, is triggering to me. It's too soon. Can we just agree that the Gilbert, <laughs> the, the, the Gilbert Gottfried joke was funny, was objectively funny. <laughs> I agree. Rest in peace, Gilbert. Yes, indeed. All right. Thank you to all of you. One more time, promote your stuff. I'll put the links in. The, Mary, what is your uh, link that people should be looking at? 
My name is Mary Amber. It's spelled funny because, you know, parents are creative nowadays. So it's M-E-R-I-A-M-B-E-R. If you look that up on Google, you'll find whatever you want to find. If you like getting into arguments on Twitter, then I've got a Twitter. My main place is probably Twitch at this point, Twitch and Discord. But you'll find what you need to find there. And I recommend going to the website because uh, put a lot of work into it. And I think it's pretty snazzy. Daniel, you've we've promoted the crap out of you on several other episodes. Is there anything new? <laughs> Did you come out with a new issue of Fair Enough or something? I now sell Oriental rugs. Wait a minute. That's not a term. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, Adam, promote your thing to get out of here. Uh, my name is Adam Sank, like the Titanic Sank. I'm Adam Sank on Twitter, on Instagram, the Adam Sank Show Facebook page, and Adam Sank Official on TikTok. Not to be confused with all the other Adam Sanks on TikTok. I do have a new issue of Fair Enough coming out in August. It will be the fifth one, and it uh, covers my exploits in Costco. Please go to fairenoughcomic.com and pick up the new issue. Sweet. So long, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.